0: feel well,
1: funny, though, because you're not on. That's all right. Well, it's like
0: um, a talk show, right. All
2: right, if this is your first time, this is our 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 uh, um, fifth meeting. <clears throat> and so over the last few weeks, we've been developing a vocabulary together. And so if it's your first time, just take the ride, okay? because we can't catch you up, necessarily, but we're also not doing anything that's particularly, uh, that's not accessible. And I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Um, We agreed at the end of last class where we discussed the historical Jesus. What could we know about Jesus as a Jew in the Galilee in Judea in the time when he lived? And how do his teachings fit into the context of Jewish teachings at the time. That was our subject last week. And it was clear at the end of last week um, that the next place to go was the question of Messiah and what it means in each tradition, how the interpretations uh, uh, diverged, and uh, uh, what does it mean when you say Jesus is the Messiah, right? And so there are there e- even if I just said to the folks who just came for the first class today, that, you know, I also want to say the purpose of this class is there are no questions that are too basic, because there are Christians who don't know about Judaism, there are Jews who don't know about Christianity, there are Christians who don't know about Christianity, there are Jews who don't know about, <laughs> about Judaism. It's all so that's what we're here to learn. We're not here to prove anything. Um, And we are blessed with an abundance of both uh, knowledge and life experience and wisdom today. You know, Reverend Suzanne Guthrie is here, and Reverend Susan Achenklaas is here, and many other knowledgeable Jews and Christians, so that if we put our collective insights together, we might approximate an accurate answer, right? If you know what I mean. So uh, please don't feel, uh, so we're looking forward to hearing from more. so, how do we wanna start?
1: How do we wanna start? I, I wanna see how many people have, are, this is the first time you've been to this conversation. Okay, all right, so a, a handful. Um, and how many of you were here last week? Okay, a, a majority of people were here last week. I was trying to think how much we wanted to recap last week. Um, in our conversation about the historical Jesus, we, we looked at him in the context of um, the headwaters of rabbinic Judaism, and particularly in light of the teachings of Rabbi Hillel and how much uh, overlap or consistency there were between Jesus' teachings and Hillel's teachings, to, to see that Jesus was teaching in a,
2: what is that? Oh, that's
3: Stu. <laughs> oh, that, oh. Hey, Stu. <laughs> you may have a
2: mute button somewhere on your, uh, and then you can listen to us, but we won't hear you cough. OK, good.
3: So we looked
1: at jesus as a a rabbi emerging from the headwaters of rabbinic judaism and we looked at him as um under a few headings as a revitalization movement founder that he wasn't founding a new religion he was part of a revitalizing movement within judaism Um, we looked at him as a, a sage or jewish wisdom teacher we looked at him as a a charismatic healer and exorcist in an early sort of charismatic stream of Judaism and we compared them to some folks like Hanina Ben Dosa and Honi the Circle Drawer, uh, whose stories are told about also first century Jewish rabbis who were, who were healers and exorcists and who, who even had the name Son of God attached to them uh, in visionary experiences. Um, Did you hear that? Uh, we'll talk more about that later. We'll talk more. that That will play into Christian... Christian messianic um, conceptions. Uh, So anyway, we were really contextualizing him, and and what came up, someone asked the question last week, well what about Jesus and Messiah, and why is he regarded by one group as Messiah, by another group not as, and today we were really going to focus on, we were going to dig more deeply into the teachings of Jesus, but it seemed like before we could go much further, we needed to face head-on this um, question of identity that seems to be one of the, the main um, forks in the road between our two traditions. Right. Uh, so uh, a helpful place to begin, I think, is maybe for Jonathan to talk mm-hmm. about Messianic expectations and understandings
2: within uh, first century Judaism. Well, I need to start before then, even. Mm. Because, again, some mm. of you know this, but it bears repeating over and over again what the word Messiah is an anglicized form of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach, 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 Mashiach. You know, we want to bring the Messiah. That's a, you know, anyway, that's a, uh, a song. Um, in Greek, Mashiach, Messiah, in Greek is Christ. Christ right okay which is usually in new testament
1: text translated into english isn't always translated as messiah sometimes it's just left in the greek as christ and so you don't always get the clear picture that it's the exact same word. Okay? Jesus Christ simply means Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus
2: and Jesus' middle name is the. Remember that, right?
1: <laughs> Jesus T Christ. Um, is that a Greek word?
0: Yes, yes.
2: It's the Greek equivalent of Mashiach. It's the Greek translation of the biblical mashiach. Nothing other than that. That is so important to get across. Okay? So all that, so Christ means mashiach. Mashiach in English means anointed one. Anointed one. Limshoch is to anoint. Bill? You can answer the question. Okay. Limshoch is to anoint. So in the Bible, the way someone is inducted into a special role is by being anointed with oil. When King David is coronated, it's through anointment. And that's why he's called Mashiach. And why in Hebrew, the Messiah son of David means the next king who's going to emerge, who's from the descendant of the house of David. Does that make sense, everybody? Mm-hmm. But it's not just kings. When the high, Here, I have a... In this wonderful book by Rabbi David Zaslow that I've been devouring, uh, Aaron the high priest is... Mashiach because he's anointed with oil in order to invest him with the role of Kohen Gadol high priest um, and all priests had to be anointed when they were invested into their priesthood in the Torah um,
1: Jonathan is, is it right that in somewhere in the Hebrew scriptures there's even a Gentile
2: I want to say that's right. Darius or Cyrus, Cyrus Cyrus king of Persia Cyrus king of Persia is referred to as Mashiach Anointed. In, in the book of Isaiah, who's saying that Cyrus is the king of Persia. So in the Bible, Mashiach means anointed. It has no supernatural context, no... Do you understand what I'm saying? And there can be more than one Mashiach, more than one right. anointed. Yeah, yeah, God's anointed. Um, uh, all the kings... Anyway, so, so questions... Or comments.
3: Well, I mean, well,
0: there is a divine connection because it came to me to into Europe, I guess, is the divine right of kings. And kings were crowned by being and going to a church or a cathedral and being anointed by the religious authority because they were thought to rule because by by inheritance and also by Power invested in them by serving God and the and the, and the people.
3: Right,
2: the divine. And, yes, go on. And,
0: and Queen Elizabeth was anointed, and at some point or other, that whoever succeeds her will also be anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, oil. what do they get anointed with? With
1: oil. 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 Just like I, we'll look at this a little bit later when we look at the New Testament conception of Mashiach, of Messiah. Um, but but. Christians, new Christians, when they're incorporated into the body of Mashiach, into the body of Christ in the in the Christian tradition, are anointed with oil following baptism, um, and you're you're sealed uh, by the Holy Spirit in baptism as Christ's own forever and incorporated into the body of. Oh, the I didn't Messiah. know that. So the the practice of anointing continues in the Christian tradition, and it's seen actually how widely as a, in the Christian tradition. Uh, well, I, I want to say, shall so we say but, very widely? You know, very widely. Some traditions, like um, probably some Baptist and more Protestant traditions, when they baptize, they may not follow the baptism with an anointing. But in Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican practice, there's typically an anointing with oil. Um, uh, and, and that's seen as you're actually incorporating that person into Messiah, into Christ.
0: Is it also I, a death? Do they anoint?
1: Yes, yeah, at the last rite? oh uh, yes, yeah, yeah. And Anointing goes through the Christian tradition. It's not only when you're baptized. There are other times of, 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 of blessing or prayer when anointing with oil would would is happen. a
3: specific kind of oil? That use?
1: It's mm-hmm. typically oil that has been blessed by uh, the bishop in the diocese where the, the priests are serving. Um, which would
2: root it? Which would lead it back chrism, to chrism? Chrism, yeah. Which would lead it? Which would lead it back? to its biblical origins where the priests, remember we talked at the end of class last week how in Christianity they, they repurpose, they reinvent the priesthood, whereas after the temple is destroyed, and so they take the, I would say, the authority of the priests and continue it through the priesthood uh, in Christianity. So the, it would be the bishop who would be empowered Not just to anoint, but to, as it were, to declare declare this oil to be anointing oil. It's
0: like making it kosher? Uh, uh, I don't know.
2: I don't know. Hold on one second. I just wanted to to say, I didn't know that. Ah, okay. I don't know if other Jews knew that. I didn't know that. I knew about baptism, but I did not know about anointing. There's often a ceremony, too, annually. I know in this
1: diocese, the Diocese of New York, um, during Holy Week, so, the sort of central week in the Christian calendar, the clergy in the diocese, the ordained priests, are invited to our cathedral in the city. And there's a, a, what's called a massive collegiality. And all of the, the colleagues, the, the college of presbyters, of priests, renew their ordination vows. And at that ceremony, the bishop um, blesses, consecrates a large bowl of oil that's to be used in the new year. And then that oil is gathered in
2: vials and given to all the clergy to take to their parishes to anoint from. Wow. This would explain to me why in every souvenir shop in Jerusalem, they have, they have these little blessed bottles me. of blessed olive oil and water that I bought for Christian friends um, when I've come back from Israel, but I didn't actually know why they'd want it.
3: <laughs>
2: uh, I'm serious. I'm serious. Uh, for everything. You anoint your car so you get better gas mileage. <laughs> but olive oil from the land of Israel from the holy land oh, you know exactly. uh, sounds pretty good right. okay that's fascinating so so then um, so then the act of anointing which means which is what the root of the word messiah mashiach and christ is is used to bring people into as it were the body of the messiah messiah the body of the anointed one the anointed one right oh wow does that um, word come from? It, which word messiah I just said Messiah is the anglicized form of Mashiach. Which so, means anointed one in Hebrew. Oh,
1: okay. So the word anointed one in Hebrew, Mashiach, becomes Messiah, mm. becomes Christ in Greek.
4: And where did it, when did it pick up the meaning
1: that we associate with it? Oh, as, as well. That's what this that's class what we're is called.
3: about today. <laughs> <laughs> Question back here. Uh,
2: are oh. trees or because or why Well, I don't know exactly, but there's a lot of uh,
5: storytelling. The olive tree extremely Talk louder Joya. Holy tree. Extremely old and extremely holy in storytelling. I mean folklore, mm. that's my Okay. Very holy.
1: The I, olives, and these were the I have
2: olives. something to say about it too.
1: These were precious, the, the, the things, the crops that were considered so precious, you know, the psalmist will talk about um, uh, that our grain and wine and oil may increase. You know, often in Hebrew scripture, you see those three pair together, grain, wine, and oil. Um, okay, so olive, right? the olive yeah. tree, yeah. Uh, and, well, Go ahead, Matthew. Well, and which becomes central uh, initially to Judaism then central to Christianity. You know, grain for bread, uh, grapes for oil. And uh, I mean, for wine, and then oil uh, for anointing, for cooking, for baking. for
2: yeah. So they're, they're staples. For, no, for, so I, let me say something about that. Hold on, Joy. Hold on a second. The economy of the land of Israel was based on grain, on grapes, and on olive, the olive oil. Okay. So these were the pillars of the diet and the economy of ancient Israel. They did not eat olives. I don't know if you know this. And you don't want to just eat an olive. Well, well, the point is, uh, uh, olives to be brined and then consumed as food happens during the Roman period. They are, not, they are considered a source of fuel. They are the main source of light. Of oil. Of, of oil, but oil for the purpose, uh, also for eating, but specially for lighting. So. The menorah, every lamp, a menorah, is not a candelabra. It's an oil lamp originally, because they didn't have candles. Mm -hmm. There was no paraffin. They didn't have. They would. so, So they used olive oil, and they used consecrated olive oil to light the menorah in the holy temple, in the sanctuary. But not to. So what was special about olive oil? It was the source of fuel and oil for ancient Israel. And fuel, meaning fuel, which you would then roll a wick, put it into the put it into so the, the little line, huh? lamp, light the wick, and it would wick up the oil and burn. That and the purer the oil and the pure the wick, the steadier and brighter the flame. This is a this is so so you have to understand that olive oil is not an accident. Olive oil was a was a centerpiece of the livelihood and, and economy of the land. And
3: this woman said, God
2: is something. Yes, now I want to hear what Joya said, but I was, giving, I'm, I'm so I was just giving a socioeconomic answer. Yeah. Now, what happens when you have this amazing tree that lives for 2,000 years that you can cut off, and then it'll start sprouting again, and uh, provides this amazing fruit that becomes your source of uh, <laughs> livelihood and fuel and light? So it's a very powerful image. So in Zechariah, for example, he has a vision, the prophet Zechariah, and he sees two olive trees pouring pure oil out of them into the holy candelabra of the temple. And it's a prophecy saying, Not by might and not by power, but by spirit, says the Lord of hosts, is the temple going to be rebuilt. So the olive tree, yes, an absolutely central symbol and physical. Uh, um, uh, aspect of ancient Israel. Did you want to add something to that, Joya? Because I, I appreciate it. I just wanted That's to give
5: side, the... But, you know, because I'm not big on, on uh, thinking that history is the answer. To me, it's something else. It it's is. both, okay? It's both, but something else supersedes it. But um, <laughs> Because history is not A equal A all the time. A right. can equal B, C, D, and we don't know. And then no, we history don't know. New history. But at one point, uh, Athena, for example. The olive tree is extremely important to her. When they were battling in ancient Greece um, between Poseidon, the god of, uh, of the depths of water and the unconscious, all that material, and Athena of wisdom and other kinds of information, they actually had people f- debating whether the ocean or the water or the olive tree. And she won out. There's there the many tree. beautiful stories, Greek stories, of how wisdom wins and how the spirit of the olive tree mm-hmm. wins and so Greece and, and Athens becomes a place of Athena and mm-hmm.
2: of the olive Wow. Tree. Do you think that's where the phrase oil and water don't mix comes from? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the other story, but anyway.
5: I was serious. That's, that's I it. Well it doesn't does it. No. And no. that's thing that we based on our, our, that, that physical thing that we talk about it begins, it brings our symbols and our wisdom
2: to us right, so olive oil and wisdom Athena, mm-hmm. and uh, so thank you that's another that's, the, that's another level which is even maybe more important, but I do, But you know we have canola oil, we have sunflower oil we have, you know, and we forget what, what this meant right. in an ancient economy, we have electric lights you know, so Jay Oh sure. And
5: and and um and you know Christ is a Greek word, so why why did it, why Greek? I mean,
1: why was that? It Greek was you know, the Roman Empire was dominating
2: the language of the empire. The Roman Empire, but we're talking. You said this is a Greek word. So we need a little history here. It's Alexander the Great, from Macedonia, who spoke Greek, who conquers a huge amount of the known, as it were, Western world at that time, all the way to India. And so Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, Greek culture, predominates. Greek city-states are formed throughout the Near East and around the Mediterranean. And Greek culture is the predominant culture. And Greek becomes, by the 2nd century BCE, the lingua franca of the that, that swath of civilization, so that all Jews who were learned spoke Greek, as well as Hebrew and Aramaic. There are at least a thousand Greek loan words into Hebrew from that period. It's just like if you go to Israel now and, and everyone talks about Matau Seba weekend. What are you doing this weekend? Right? It's an English word that now everyone uses in Israel They don't say Sofa shavu. There's a Hebrew word for weekend. T-shirt. You know, uh, it's like T-shirt. You know, there's hundreds of English words that get transliterated in Hebrew newspapers now because English is the current lingua franca of the world. It was the same with Greek. And when the... um, uh, and, And the loan words, you'll know some of them. Afikomen. Afikomen is a loan word from the Greek... Into Hebrew, that's, afikomen is the last thing you eat in the Passover Seder. It's when you hide the matzah and you have to hunt for the afikomen. Afikomen comes from a Greek word, epikomenos, or something like that, which means uh, after the meal or that sort of thing. So it's like dessert. You know? Um, There are are hundreds and hundreds of loan words in rabbinic Hebrew that are from Greek. When the Roman Empire supersedes uh, the Hellenistic world, uh, uh, Greek remains for a long time, the main language of the realm. Latin replaces it very slowly. Was that would that be accurate? Yeah. And also
0: and- it's the merchant language too. It's how you trade. That
2: it's how the- you traded. So they weren't gonna superimpose Latin on Greek. It's, it was the it was the it was the language of commerce, it was the language of uh, learning it with,
1: yeah. And, and
2: eventually it,
1: it begins to split, and as the Roman Empire develops, Latin become, comes to dominate in the western side and, and, and Greek in the eastern side. So today... Uh, Latin, you know, for, for centuries, was the language of the Roman Catholic Church, Greek the language of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Also the Greek Orthodox Church, right. the Eastern Orthodox Church. At yeah. this point, though, it, it's, it's mostly Greek, and most learned Jews in this time, first, second century, are reading the Hebrew scriptures in the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek translation, which then um, spreads even further because it becomes the scripture of the Greek-speaking Christians. And so that's how so many of those Hebrew words through the Greek Septuagint translation came into, well, even into English today, right. but certainly into
2: Greek. Whereas the Hebrew Bible, which was, uh, the canon was basically closed, say, around 150 BCE, right? Before, 150 years before Jesus. The canon is closed. It's in Hebrew, because Hebrew was the spoken language of Judea. But then the last books of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Daniel mm-hmm. and, and the book of um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, have much Aramaic in it. Aramaic was the language of the Persian Empire, as it were, uh, which was pushed back by the Helene, by Alexander the Great, and Greek eventually replaced it. So there's this little, you remember, Israel is this little crossroads between Egypt and Syria, between the Mediterranean and the East. And there's so much traffic and so much cultural traffic through there. And of course, that little people there are going to have to adapt. So Aramaic continues to be spoken, but Greek is added to it. And the rabbis, the Talmud is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. But there were Jews all around the Mediterranean who didn't speak Aramaic and didn't speak Hebrew. They were Greek-speaking Jews. And so the Bible, by the 3rd century BCE, has been translated also into Greek so that Greek-speaking Jews can access it. And that's what
1: Paul is using. He's using the Septuagint. You can see in his, when he quotes scripture in his letters that he's sending off to early Christians, the quotes from the scriptures are coming from the
2: Septuagint translation, not from the, the original people. source. Yeah. So, however, by the first century, the framers of Christianity are Greek, Greek speakers. And so, the Christian Bible, its initial, its original language is Greek. Correct? Yes. Yeah. So, does that help explain it, Jake? Yes, very detailed. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I
5: appreciate that
6: education. Really.
2: Yeah, these are the things we need to know, I think, in order to have an an uh, uh, intelligent conversation and context about it.
6: Uh, Matthew, when you said that this anoint with anointing, you're taken into the body of Christ. What I'm actually thinking of, and if this bears any relation to the body as used in the expression, the body politic, or mm-hmm, the community, mm-hmm. and, and so it, could, it's, it isn't necessarily that you're in that body,
3: mm-hmm.
6: that you're in the community yes. of people who have been anointed. Does that
1: make sense? Yeah, so I, I want to get to this when we begin looking at the way the New Testament redefines the popular conception of Mashiach. Oh, okay um, so uh, maybe we should jump into the the first yeah. oh and, and pauline no, so
2: yeah we we'll hold that yeah. question he's got it
0: so i'll add to that because that's what
4: i was thinking about the mishkan as the body the mishkan a hebrew word for the the um the place
2: the tabernacle, the
0: tabernacle mm-hmm. where the holy is mm-hmm, kept mm-hmm. and we often parallel that with
2: yeah. the body Right. But I, it, So we can talk about that because really the Mishkan is not the body. It, the body in the Jewish tradition is the people Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you join the body of Israel mm-hmm. and that language gets used differently mm-hmm. in Christianity and we'll talk about that. In
3: this class, we're talking about how being anointed makes you different.
2: No. In this class, we're talking about how the idea, we've only got that, we're, like on, we're like over here and we're gonna go keep going. No, first we wanted you to understand what Messiah means in Hebrew and what Christ means. It means anointed. So let me continue from there. Um, so Ellen mentioned the divine right of kings. There's always been in an ancient world an anci- in it, this idea that the king is the earthly representative of the gods or of God, right? Judaism made a clear break with that. Because of its monotheistic position, no, all humans are made in the divine image, but no human is more divine than any other. That is the basic biblical and continues to be understanding of humanity's relationship to the divine. That means, and this for me was one of the great innovations of ancient Judaism, Kings, you know, the divine right of kings in my, in my folkloric mind is the ability to say, I'm going to sleep with that woman before you marry her. Mm-hmm. Right? It, I'm pre, Whatever it's called.
0: Uh, yeah. right. All, Dwight but, de Seigneur.
2: Dwight de Seigneur, the right of the Seigneur. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. What I mean is that when King David decides to sleep with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and sends Uriah off to the front to get killed. He's taken to task for that. He has to repent. And the Bible then explains uh, that ev- in, in Deuteronomy that every king of Israel must keep this teaching and read it by their throne and read it all the time. Do not get too haughty. Do not gather too many horses. Do not tr- get too many slaves or too many wives. Remember... You know, so there's this thrust in ancient Judaism through to this day that says that, no, in fact, there is no divine right of kings. Kings are, are as uh, subject to the moral law as anyone else. And that's one of the things that distinguishes ancient Judaism and Judaism to this day. Um, so that's very important to keep in mind as we continue to approach this, because when You, you, no, Jesus becomes, after his death... Sure, Jesus is a law-abiding Jew. This is what you missed, Sharon, so you have to, you have to hang, hang there, okay? Um, Jesus was a law-abiding Jew, and so he criticized, as is part of Jewish tradition, criticized the excesses of power, right? But now we're talking about someone who then gets elevated after his death to a status that is superhuman, it goes against Jewish teaching. Does that make sense? Okay, so in the, by, the late, by, by the book of Daniel, by the 2nd by the century, 1st century BCE, and the 1st century, um, Jews were also starting to hope for a day of the Lord, a great, awesome day of the Lord, when what would happen? There, there's no agreement exactly about what would happen other than foreign rule and oppression would be thrown off. Everyone would see the know God intimately and an anointed one would once again sit on the throne in Jerusalem, meaning a king, a king descended from the house of David. A just king. A just king. And there might be some, some, of the, some of the messianic, some of these end. And so what doesn't exist in the Bible, except very, very late, and then starts to come in more and more, is this idea of an end time, an end of history. In the Bible, there's no talk of this, really. No, but during this Hellenistic period, this idea starts emerging, both within Judaism and outside of it, that there's going to be an end of history as we know it when God is going to intervene and restore the fortunes of the people of Israel and allow us to have a king on our own throne. And Isaiah says, and then let's all go up to the mountain of the Lord and everyone shall take hum, hem, a hem, take hold of the hem of our cloak and we'll all go up there and we'll say, it'll, it, the, and, and the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea.
1: And people from all nations will stream to the holy mountain. Because
2: they'll get it, right? And so there is, there starts to be this um, super-realistic, you know, not just historical, but a yearning in much Jewish literature that something's going, God's, God's got to intervene somehow here, right? We're under the thumb of Rome. It, something's got to happen. Yeah?
0: Is that the same... Kind of concept as what as we were all at Mount Sinai that we were all in that
2: the
1: idea that that all the Jewish souls were there together.
0: Well, that that you. I mean, even now we are all at we are we're all at Mount Sinai. Well, that
2: that that kind of I know what you're getting at, and and and, uh David Zaslav has a wonderful chapter on that, which he calls Hebraic thinking. That's the title he gave it which is to understand that for Jews of ancient times, and um, there was no past and present, right? They didn't think that way. Right. You could enact the, the No, it's not that they didn't think that way. He's saying that we're so stuck on thinking that way that we, we, we may not understand the way they or, organized their perception of reality. Uh, and he does some interesting takes on how Hebrew, which doesn't have a past tense and a future tense, biblical Hebrew and rabbinic Hebrew, it has an imperfect tense and a perfect tense, meaning tasks that haven't been completed, tasks things that haven't been completed yet, that are ongoing, and things that have been completed. And so it's a... Biblical Hebrew is its own thing. And it's kind of like if we were, if, if we were anthropologists wanting to understand another culture... We'd have to understand their language and the concept behind their, the words they choose to use, or we won't understand how they organize reality. The point is, and I can't do this too articulately, is that um, when we say, we were slaves in Egypt at the Passover Seder, what do we mean by it? Our <laughs> they, our ancestors. Our ancestors. Yeah. But in rabbinic times when they said, we were slaves in Egypt, maybe that meant something different to them. Yeah something much more present. Yeah. And that to
1: remember those events was to make them present now. Right. Not Let's just at to the cognitively word, look back. Right. Let's
2: look at the word remember. It means to put your body back together.
3: Right.
2: Members, to remember, literally means to re-embody. That's what the word remember means. So it's important to understand that uh, what Su- I think what Susan was alluding to is that our, our typical way of organizing reality we were slaves in Egypt. Well, what do we mean by that? It's we mean
0: Linear. All right, linear. It's linear as opposed to...
2: As opposed to cyclical. Circular. circular. And so I think... Joy, do you want to add something about that?
5: Initiation. The idea of initiation. Under, in Hebrew, where it is, and in Christianity, I know the initiations having gone through some, and uh, initiation has as its model. Death and rebirth. Right. as its model. Mm-hmm. There's no group in the world that hasn't done initiation. And it does it at the crucial points of life. And never is it as despairing as it is now, where there is no sense. There's like a nothingness mm-hmm. now, a kind of existential angst, where before, there actually was a feeling that life and death is a continuity, and you learn it through initiation.
2: What did Jews traditionally? So wondered, yes. What did Jews traditionally call someone? Hebrew name who converts to Judaism? Okay. No. What? What's your Hebrew name? Oh. Whatever name you choose.
0: Son, Abraham. Son of Abraham and Sarah.
2: Daughter of Abraham and Sarah. So that means when someone converts to Judaism, and they emerge from the mikvah, which is the same as baptism, right? They emerge from the waters of life, the living waters, with a new self. They're born again, right? That's what conversion is. You're born again into a new identity. That identity is in the body of Israel, and you are connected to Abraham and Sarah. So this is, this is um, mythical thinking. This, is, this isn't linear thinking. And that's the point that I think Susan was raising that is, I think, very important for us to understand right now as we continue talking. Past and present were much more, would the word be fungible? Uh, interchangeable, fluid, um, and that cycles of time weren't just advancing cycles of time, but were also cycles of time. Right. And, when, and you are back at the beginning again. Literally. Yeah. Not literally. E- right. e- <laughs> experientially. That's, that's, that's experiential, exactly.
0: experiential versus conceptual. And, and a lot of this, exactly. you know, I'm hearing is very conceptual stuff, and history is conceptual. This sounds to me very experiential, what you're describing. Well, and
1: this is, why is this night different from all of, not why is, was that night, right. this night, because right. that right. night is now. And, because and, and,
0: we're placing ourselves in right. it. Right.
1: And you see Jesus working with the same Hebrew understanding of remembrance at, at the Last Supper, when he shares a final meal with the disciples, and he gives them bread and wine and says, do this to remember me, yeah. do this to reconstitute my presence, my teaching, my life. You know, it's it's again not do this to think about something from the past. Right, it's, it's, it's do this it's zakar is the Hebrew word. Zakar, right. it's remembering, making present, making whole,
2: remembering. Right. So our complicated task in addressing these subjects, because we're trained for benefit in the secular, linear, historical tradition is that we have to hold that and, at the same time, be able to hold this. That's right brain is the associative, imaginative, um, and left brain is the linear, analytic. We have to be able to have our going on all four pistons here, as it were. (laughs) Um, So uh, that's very important, Carol.
6: I'm thinking we were talking the other night in the prayer class about about, um, uh, religion and theater. And, um, and I'm just thinking that's what one does. What you're talking about is what an actor does and what an audience does. That's right. holds both realities. Mm-hmm. The, the willing suspension of disbelief, but even more than disbelief, it's the willing suspension of, of not believing. Um, that's what you do. And in that shared experience, between the actor and the audience something really magical
3: happens.
6: It's
1: and a that's great what liturgy is. It's a sacred drama. It's it's, yeah, it's, oh, what does liturgy mean in Greek? The Liturgia is they I've heard it translated the work of the people. I've also heard it said that that's not the best of translations. Oh, okay. so that's what I'm most familiar but, with. But the sacred it's what drama. we do together. What we and do they,
2: together. I want to add to that just a second. There was an ad on TV last night for audible.com and it totally captivated me cuz there's someone sitting with headphones, and they're lying in a beach chair, but the story they're hearing puts them in outer space. Yeah,
0: virtual reality. And
2: so the screen is showing them on this faraway planet. And then another story, and they're sitting at their table eating their cereal, and then it's some story about a, about a, um, a medieval, uh, and he looks up, and he, there's this whole court out in front of him. It was a great commercial, because it was about, this, it was about being immersed in a story. <laughs> so
6: we're being dipped in the experience to get back to anointing, dipped in the experience, but also it has a more contextual idea which is dipped into being something different than
4: everybody else. Well,
2: so those are well, we're gonna thoughts. Well I'm gonna take your cue and go back to Mashiach. Okay. So during the time of Jesus. Many Jews were hoping for the arrival of their Messiah. What do you think that meant to them? based on what I've described to you.
1: And you remember last week we looked at the the political context that they were living in. This, you know, oppression, um, double taxation uh, from the empire. It's it's not a happy time and all these different, we looked at the different groups and the way they were trying to maintain Jewish identity in relation to that system of oppression. So you had Zealots who were wanting to violently resist. You had Pharisees who were trying to integrate but maintain a sense of priestly identity. You had Essenes who were separating completely. And so all these groups, they're longing for the system to change. Mm. Uh, and So out of that longing, that's what frames the hope of Mashiach, that, that David's throne will be restored, Rome will be kicked out, um, and we will be a people unto
2: ourselves again. Right, and be able to live in, with, uh, in peace with the society, uh, the Jewish society that we dream of. Yes, Amy?
6: But Messiah, going back to what you had said earlier, that basically we're all created in the divine image and no one is more divine than right. anyone else. So this Messiah was not really, shall we say, a Christ-like figure.
2: This I'm Messiah that, would be fully human. Right. Uh, and the word Savior is a word... uh, um, uh, preserved and only used in relation to God. God is the redeemer in Judaism who redeemed us from slavery.
1: It was also a word used in Greek in relation to Caesar. Caesar was called the savior who brings peace. Um, You know, the Pax Romana, so Caesar um, was the divine Augustus, the Savior, who has brought peace to Rome. Right. And Christians intentionally appropriated and stood on its head a lot of the language that had been applied to Caesar. Right. But for
2: Jews who had, didn't become Christians, who, who took a different path, right, uh, the idea that an earthly king would declare themselves the Savior was blasphemy, Right. And so, because for the. Yes, Susan?
3: Well,
4: um, I've been reading recently about how popular the book of Daniel was. Yes. In
3: Intertestamentary
2: yeah. times.
4: And in the book of Daniel, there is a figure there who is both half divine, half human. And yes. That fed into the uh, concept of who the Messiah
2: It's on here.
3: Uh, No, no, you're right. I
1: want to go there. The son of man. Good. Um, Good.
2: So then, I Susan is Susan is correcting me because I'm overstating. During this time, there was all kinds of fervent speculation and hope for divine intervention, and perhaps in the Book of Daniel, which is probably the latest, the last book of the Bible that was written. and probably got included in the canon because of its immense popularity, uh, uh, there, it starts to develop a whole new picture of um, what this anointed one will be. By and large, though, the idea of a, a, a savior or redeemer is not language that's associated with Messiah, in my experience. Messiah is the one who is the earthly figure that who will is the anointed one who will lead us but it's God who is going to do the intervention whether it's a supernatural intervention or 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 some other kind Um, tell me more about what you're learning or do you want to talk about son of man and and I,
1: I, I just I wanted to say that the the images there's a plethora of Images, uh, this longing, this expectation among the Jewish people, and Christians ends up merging some of the images. So, the image of uh, Daniel talks about, he said in his vision, he sees one like a son of man coming in power with great glory. And so, there's this sort of angelic or semi divine figure who's going to intervene in history. There's also the longing and hope for a Mashiach who will be a king, who will, you know, be a political king, who's going to. Christians sort of merge these images in Jesus. The Son of Man image gets pulled in, the Messiah image right. gets pulled in, and they create a new expectation.
2: Um, but I guess it would be fair to say there was no single messianic doctrine in the first century. Very fair. There was no single messianic doctrine. Uh, uh, so, but I also think, I, this just may be my story, but I think it's fair to say that um, when Jesus was crucified by the Romans and died and redemption didn't come for the Jews, it just got worse over the next decades. Uh, when early followers of Jesus started making the claims that he was the anointed king of the Jews, it came to, across to them as absurd. Right.
1: He didn't. he didn't restore the throne of David. He didn't restore the temple. He hasn't brought peace. The Romans are still occupying. How can you be the Messiah? Because the Messiah was supposed to do all these things that Jesus went and got killed and didn't do.
2: Right. New. No? That's what you say. New no? means so. new. No?
3: Uh,
2: so that, that might bring us to a better position for you to... That isn't to jump in? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's I'm going to I'm
1: going to pass these sheets around. I don't know if they are enough, but we'll we'll uh, share so I'll start passing them. Okay, you take half. You
2: start talking. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, share everybody. There's not quite enough.
2: Yeah, Anybody who's do. comfortable
1: sharing. Let those come around on the inner circle, the Jonathan, the inner circle. <laughs> right. Should I ask Janet well,
3: well, maybe to let's see we may want a few more. I don't know how many. We, I think
4: there's
3: so, more of them. Okay. Sure. Yeah.
1: So. so these are just a few lines from both Hebrew and New Testament scripture. Yeah, we're going to have some more runoff, so if you don't get one, that's okay. More will come around before we're done, and you don't have to have it to hear what we're going to talk about. I'm going to read the lines. i get a few more. So one of the questions that we have to address that follows on our conversation last week about the historical Jesus is the question, did Jesus himself imagine that he was Mashiach? Did he see himself in that role? Um, Or is that uh, an image that was projected onto him by the later Christian community? And it, it does become in many ways the dividing line for those who identify as Christians or Jews, because the Christians accept Jesus as the Messiah, and the Jews don't, you know, and then it becomes this sort of really... Um, yes, this big rift, this big... So uh, I want to try to get under the surface of that, and and before the rift happened, you know, what was actually going on, and what was Jesus up to? So the, the question, did Jesus picture himself as Messiah? Um, and this relates to what... Uh, Susan is talking about this language of the Son of Man that comes from the book of Daniel, which very early on um, was layered onto Jesus, and Jesus may have used that language himself. So you see here in the first few verses uh, that I've put on the page, I'll read them. The first one is from Daniel, chapter seven. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So this is that sort of semi-divine figure that's kind of in the popular apocalyptic imagination at the time. But the way Son of Man gets used in Hebrew scripture, and even in that verse, it can simply mean a human being. Sometimes it's literally
2: translated human being. So you see Ezekiel. Uh, Matthew, in modern Hebrew, ben adam" means human being. Son of man. That's how you say human being in modern Hebrew.
1: So that's, so in Ezekiel, he said to me, son of man, he said to me, human one, human being, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. And then in in Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you were mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So clearly, son of man is just a sort of circumlocution for human being. Um, Did Jesus use that term? And if he did, what did he mean by it? And this has been a, a point of division among scholars. Uh, some imagine that Jesus pictured himself in the apocalyptic role that was imagined in the book of Daniel That Jesus saw himself as this 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 one who will come on you know clouds with great glory that he was the Son of Man come to Institute a new era um, You see some of here are a couple verses from the Gospels uh, Where Jesus uses this language and the first one from Matthew 24. It's a clear reference to Daniel this is, these are words given to Jesus, whether or not the historical Jesus said them. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Sounds a lot like Daniel. So it's, it's basically a quote from Daniel. Um, again, the question is, did Jesus talk in this way, or did the early Christians talk in this way about Jesus? Uh, last, I wish we still had the, our sticky pages up here from last week because we looked. At, and if you need, yeah, if you need a paper, there are more coming around here. You can raise your hand. Last week, we looked at the way the Gospels were constructed, and that uh, Mark, we think, was the earliest, the earliest and shortest of the four Gospels in the New Testament. That Mark was incorporated into both Matthew and Luke. They used Mark and they added materials to the account of Mark. Uh, So what becomes important when we look at the Son of Man sayings in the Gospels, I'm going to wait just a second so everyone can get one of these pages. So what becomes really important is to see uh, where they appear in the Gospel accounts. And the only Son of Man saying that is, independently attested in more than one gospel source is the one that you see after that son of man saying the foxes have holes and the birds of the of the sky have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head Uh, and then and rest is added that's the version from the gospel of thomas and i want to go into that a little bit Um, but there you see son of man isn't being used in an apocalyptic sense it's being used and and the human being has nowhere to lay his head the foxes the birds and the human beings Uh, this is the only son of man saying in the gospel records that is independently attested in more than one primary source Uh, so what that means is uh, it shows up in the gospel of thomas which is an independent collection of jesus sayings it also shows up in q which is, we talked about this last week for those of you who aren't here, was a source document used by Matthew and Luke in the construction of their Gospels. And so it's attested in both of those, and it's the same wording. So we see it showing up in a number of early Christian sources. The other Son of Man sayings, when they show up in one Gospel or the other, the saying isn't attested to in, in, the, in another Gospel independently. Uh, And what it begins to look like when you compare them Mm -hmm. is that the Son of Man sayings that are used apocalyptically, that they're actually a later development within the tradition. The apocalyptic is is an add-on, is a layering. Uh, And that the uh, earlier sayings that are attested in multiple sources are non-apocalyptic. Does that make sense? It's a little complicated. Well, you know, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm getting at there is, when the phrase def- was used, was, was Son of Man being used just generically to mean human being, or was it being used to refer to this figure that Daniel had envisioned, who was going to come at the end of time and set, set things right, you know? Um, so, one school of scholarship would say that that apocalyptic is, is the second layer, um, Where this becomes important when we look at the teachings of Jesus, uh, early historical Jesus scholarship went down a road of thought that said one of the few things we can actually know about Jesus' teaching is that he himself was apocalyptic in his preaching, that Jesus was expecting an imminent end of the world, um, that the Son of Man was going to come, close down history, you know, set things uh, straight. This dominated historical Jesus scholarship for uh, much of the, the past century, a vision of Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet. And it was kind of embarrassing because it's like, okay, one of the few things we can know about Jesus is that he was an apocalyptic prophet and he was wrong. Uh, so,
3: uh, right, because then it didn't happen.
0: Uh, well. That he was misunderstood. Or that he was
1: misunderstood. Uh, so what recent historical Jesus scholarship has been, um, a, an alternative camp that's been forming, is one that says the apocalyptic actually comes in as a, as a secondary layer and it comes in after the destruction of the second temple. And we looked at that last week, that in 70 the temple was destroyed and then suddenly the times got really apocalyptic and people were expecting an imminent end. God was gonna bring judgment for the destruction of the temple. And that that's when this phrase that Jesus had used generically began being linked to this apocalyptic son of man vision. Uh, another important- And Jesus
2: th- had been dead for 40 years. Right, by then.
1: right, by this point. Um, Another thing that's really made the conversation interesting is the discovery in the 1940s of what's called the Gospel of Thomas. Are some of you familiar with this text? Yes. A few of you? So it's a collection of sayings of Jesus, 114 sayings, and each one just simply begins Jesus said, and a teaching Jesus said, and a teaching. Uh, It's not a narrative gospel like the other four gospels are. It doesn't tell the story of Jesus. There's not a story of his ministry, of his death, of his resurrection, just a teachings collection. Scholars had posited that teaching collections like this existed and that Q, that hypothetical document we looked at last week that Matthew and Luke used, that that was one of these early collections of Jesus sayings. Um, So in 1945, a farmer was digging in northern Egypt, found a big earthen jar filled with um, papyrus manuscripts, and they were early Christian scriptures. Um, One of them, the one that's most important for the historical Jesus conversation, was this collection called the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, What it verified for Christian scholars was that in the early centuries of the church there were sayings gospels that were just collections of teachings. What's thought is that as early Christians moved away from the events of the life of Jesus, so in the earliest days of the Christian church, they were just recording the teachings, okay? Everyone knew the story and the crucial thing was to keep the teachings preserved. As you moved further away from the events, uh, the events of Jesus' life, they said, okay, we actually need to get the story set down so that we can pass the story along. So the early collections of sayings were then incorporated into the narrative gospel forms that we have today. And so with that, that earlier genre of sayings gospels died out. So they weren't Christians, were no longer circulating sayings gospels. they were circulating narrative gospels. Um, many scholars think that Thomas comes from that early window in the church when sayings gospels were still circulating, and it's been restored now. Uh, what's interesting, particularly about Thomas is that it lacks the apocalyptic, Um, preaching in Jesus' message. There's nothing about the end of the world. It's purely um, wisdom material. Uh, When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's collections of wisdom material that are parables, uh, aphorisms, those kinds of teachings, in addition to apocalyptic predictions about the end of the world. In Thomas, the apocalyptic's gone. So one really good example, and a few of you have heard me say this, uh, used this example before, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells a parable. Uh, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. A man went out to fish, and he cast his nets, and he pulled them in, and there were several uh, good fish and several bad fish. And so he threw back the bad fish, and he kept the good fish. And then the disciples ask him what it means, and he says, it means at the end of time the Son of Man, there's that saying, the Son of Man will come with his angels and he will divide the good from the bad, and he will burn the bad in eternal fire. Okay. This parable in Matthew's Gospel follows two other parables. One is the parable of the pearl of great price. Jesus says, tells a story of the kingdom of God being like finding a pearl of great price and um, selling all you have in order to have that. Then he tells a, a, a story about a, a treasure hidden in a field. He says, a man went out and found a treasure hidden in a field. And so he went and sold all he had, bought the field so that he could possess the treasure. And then all of a sudden there's this apocalyptic parable. Okay, same sequence shows up in the Gospel of Thomas, and the parable is told this way. The kingdom of God is like this. A man went out to fish. He cast his nets into the sea. He pulled them in, and there were several small fish and there was one big fine fish. Mm -hmm. And without hesitation, he threw back the small fish and kept the one big fine fish. So you see the difference. It's basically the same parable, except now what's gone is the apocalyptic element and the moralistic element. It's no longer good and bad. It's small and big. And suddenly that parable moves into resonance with the Pearl of Great Price and the Treasure in the Field. They're all about the same thing. For decades, scholars had thought that the little explanations tacked on the end of the parables where Jesus says, it means this, at the end of time, the Son of Man, that those were little sermonettes tacked on by the early church. And so when Thomas was found, it was sort of a confirmation of that because the parables all existed in seemingly more primitive forms. So the allegorical explanations weren't tacked on and the apocalyptic layering was gone. So this, Sort of stood Christian scholarship on its head because suddenly you had a window into a Jesus who wasn't apocalyptic, which is what scholars had been arguing uh, for a few decades. Um, excuse me, okay. um, yeah. Um, I wondered what the context of the second quote was about the one that comes from Matthew, Luke, and Thomas. Ah, so so. Again, when it appears in Thomas, there's yeah, what, what's the context of the saying, the foxes have holes, the birds of the sky have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Oh. Um, I could flip to a gospel and we could see the exact context. I can't tell you off the top of my head, and maybe some of the other uh, Christian folks here know, but I think in part it's in, in the context of Jesus' itinerant ministry where he's moving through the towns and the villages, spreading the good news, spreading the gospel message.
5: And they ask him, he keeps saying, follow me and see? Right. That's the point. Follow me and see where I live. See where I am. So the the true human
1: being has nowhere to lay your head. There's no time to rest. Let's get up and go. You know, that could be one reading, perhaps.
2: Um, A great (laughs) storyteller. The parables. Yes. Yeah, jump in. Sharon we, this was our topic last week.
6: Yeah. No no, I'm just asking.
2: Go ahead. If he became
6: the thing he was against,
3: why would
2: He, he didn't became? become the thing he was against. If Jesus was against what? What was the question?
3: If, if, if he was against?
2: Sharon, I'm sorry. Sharon, Sharon. Sharon, we discussed this at great length and I'll be happy to talk with you about it afterwards. Okay. Never mind.
1: okay.
3: All right, we can chat afterwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um,
6: um, we, we maybe maybe we just jumped and I I missed a a piece here but so Jesus is crucified yes he dies yes and then the um, christians
1: say he he is resurrected
0: but, so that's 40 years later
1: no 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 um, the gospel accounts themselves the earliest got, written narrative gospel we have Scholars estimate was written around the year 70 following the destruction of the temple. Jesus died around the year 30, so 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. 40 years later, that account is written. Account um, is written Christian by... teachings are circulating long before that, and they're references to the story of Jesus, death, resurrection, and early letters that early Christians are writing. So the earliest layer of the New <coughs> Testament isn't the Gospels, it's actually the epistles or the letters that were circulated by Paul, James. Peter, John, um, uh, so so this isn't the first time in 70 that that shows up.
6: So, so, so presumably, if you kind of reconstruct what happened, the followers of Jesus after his death said, "Wait a second, you know, he, he, he's our Messiah. He can't he can't die." And they constructed that story to
2: well, well. Let's so let's look. Let's <laughs> or, look maybe, or maybe they have an experience yeah. Yeah. that overwhelms yeah. them yeah. with yeah. the yeah. truth. Exactly. Of their experience, so, so it's not that they're necessarily making it up to justify. Right. So uh, re- I right don't. I don't want to negate the, po- the, the 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 not just the possibility, but the stream of religious inspiration <laughs> that leads them to their conviction. So and
5: that he was in fact the son of God, so, and that he did raise fact,
2: was, was in fact raised from the dead. Let me say, may I? Yeah, t- please. So in this context. There are, among first century Jews, there is a common, in, and I should say, among rabbinic teachers. And remember last time we discussed how Jesus was clearly in the rabbinic fold? Um, they are very interested in the resurrection of the dead. And they are interested in it as an idea, as a concept uh, along with their idea that some, someday something magnificent is going to happen, that's going raise to raise everyone from the dead. But they're also interested because Elijah, the prophet, does not die. Elijah, his, 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 in, in 800 BCE, his, his, his um, disciple Elisha watches him go up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And Moses... Does he die? He dies, but no one knows to this day where Moses is buried. No, no trace of his body. So there's this is already this, the holiest people in Jewish tradition whom their the, bodies are gone. Their bodies are gone. Mm-hmm. What happened to them? Were they taken up to heaven holy? So Jesus, the idea after Jesus dies that this could happen to Jesus is not far fetched in first century Jewish thought. Um, it, again, I want to contextualize early the the beginnings of Christianity as a Jewish movement, mm-hmm. so, right? Uh, uh, Gail? Are there not also
5: at least one, maybe two reports of
2: Jewish healers who raised someone from the... That's right, so, thank you. Elijah. Thank you. Elijah. Uh, and, and, and Elisha. Okay. Elijah and Elisha, sure. whose miracle stories, Jesus' stories, are modeled after. They come to... Elisha comes to a woman, the Shunammite woman, whose son... who she, He had promised her... She was barren, had promised her that she would have a child. She has a child. He comes back years later, and the child is dead. And the woman says, no? And, uh, and, uh, and Alicia says, wait. And he does this. It's an, a very interesting story. He lays, his, story. Body he lays his body over the body he, and raises this child back to life. So yes, the actual resurrection from the dead is in the... Ancient prophetic sources and then is revisited in the stories about Jesus' healing powers. So and then Susan jump in after this, but so so yes, the stories of
1: Jesus' resurrection come out of a context of a general expectation of a general resurrection. So people are talking about a general resurrection at the end of time when all will be raised, God's justice will, you know, be fulfilled. And so what happens when Jesus dies. There are accounts in the early, uh, before the Gospels, accounts in, say, like Paul's letters, where he talks about a series of appearances that happened. He says, I pass on to you what I received from the apostles. And in Paul's story, he, had, he went to Jerusalem, met with the, the disciples of Jesus, received their stories. And he says uh, that Jesus uh, appeared to Peter, to Cephas, uh, appeared to James and John, that he then appeared to over 500 brothers, brothers and sisters together at once, and then as uh, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And he uses this word appearance in uh, each of these, the same word that's used for him. When you look at the story in, um, in the New Testament of Paul's conversion experience, he has uh, the Acts of the Apostles, which recounts stories about the early apostles or disciples of Jesus, Paul has this visionary experience of a blinding light um, that speaks with the voice of Jesus, and he's, he's converted in this experience. Uh, so he uses this same word, appearance, to describe what happened to him that he uses to describe what happened to the others. And then when he goes on and talks about resurrection in his epistles, he says um, people are questioning him about the resurrection of the dead and what it is like and... Um, he kind of tells them that they're being silly and he says don't you understand that what's sown a physical body is raised a spiritual body Um, and it's not at all clear that he's talking about at this point physical resurrection Um, he it almost looks like he's arguing against it um, that he's arguing for some kind of spiritual resurrection So that's the earliest account that we have of this resurrection experience, and it's that something happened. These early followers had some encounter with their now deceased rabbi, uh, appeared to them, and now they have to make sense of this experience. What does this mean? Well, the theological conversation in their culture is that there will be a resurrection of the dead at the end of time, and so what Paul then says is, well, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's making sense of it in his thought categories. So he says, yes, we believe the resurrection will happen. We've already seen Jesus, so he's the first fruits of the general resurrection. So that's how they interpret the experience that happened to them. Um, and uh, there were, I'm tr- I don't even know the order, but I know Susan way back was going to...
5: comment is not
1: Okay. Jay. Yeah, you keep mentioning the word experience. Yeah. But I think it's, a, you know, from what I'm hearing, it's much bigger. The type of um, a word. Mm-hmm, I, th- mm-hmm. I think it is a semantic
5: issue here. Okay. Because uh, the ex- you know, it reminds me of this book I once read, was, and the first chapter was defining the difference between a, a fairy tale and a myth. And it said a fairy tale happens on the outside and a myth is on the inside. Now, you can have experiences on the outside and mm-hmm. the inside. I think this one so strongly hits... The inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's more than an experience. It's a it's a testament on on, on culture and values and ethics and morality and beliefs and faith, and and, and it's all happening on the inside. So I think mm-hmm. there's a stronger word here mm-hmm. than experience, because experience could mean. right. Okay. So I kind
3: of
1: I'll respond to from my own perspective as as a as a Christian. Um, I personally believe that something objective happened following Jesus' death, that he was encountered in some way. Was it uh, a a physical raising of his corpse or transformation of his corpse? Was it a spiritual visionary encounter? That, it's okay for me to leave that kind of in mystery. You know, what exactly happened because the records in the New Testament present different understandings of that. Some seem very corporeal, some seem visionary, some seem spiritual. For me, it's important to say, uh, within my tradition, something happened that that had an objective quality to it. They had some encounter that was objective, that wasn't just an hallucination. Then they interpreted that encounter within the thought categories of their tradition. General resurrection of the dead, etc. Then that experience, though, also becomes an archetype, in a sense, of of death and resurrection that happens within us, you know, and so it becomes an archetype of our own journey of transformation, and I think both of those understandings exist in the tradition, that there was an objective external experience that happened, but then that experience is sort of recapitulated internally in the spiritual transformation of the individual Person of faith or believer. Nicely
2: said. Well done. <laughs> uh, nicely said. So we we're speaking as religious leaders, so uh, we don't have to speak from the academy, and question the reality of spiritual experience. That doesn't mean we have to say we have to affirm it as objectively. So it means that we are not only happy to but inclined to incorporate this category of unexplainable, by rational means, experiences that human beings have that seem to impart a deep sense of meaning and purpose to their lives as real. Right? right? That's our assumption. That there is that, that reality isn't just what we see. That
1: There is a spiritual dimension to reality. Maybe there are multiple layers and levels of reality that
2: we're moving through uh, right so, now. So as, as a modern Jew, I have no need to negate the reality... Of the followers of Jesus and their experience right. Right? the difficulty happens when you claim that your experience right. is, is, the is the only, the only experience you have to have my experience right. or else you're not really connected to the but but my perspective as a modern religious leader is that because all experience spiritual experience is mediated through our beings, our limited human faculties, our limited human faculties, each of us will come up with a different take Mm -hmm. on what that means. While we can all point with our elbows, kind of, to, I know it's about love.
3: (laughs) And I know it's about...
2: Do you know what I mean? And then, well, I use the elbow image because it's like, it's not even like that. It's sort of like, yeah, I I know what it's about. (laughs) And then, because we so desperately want to know what it's about, we want to communicate it. Instead of being content to say, here's my story that tries to communicate mm-hmm. this universal truth. We say this is the story, right? Because we want it so bad. So, uh, but one thing about the beauty of being able to teach here is that we don't have to. We don't have to um, uh, separate ourselves mm-hmm. from what draws us to a religious life, and and we uh, and so so when Jesus died, his. It seems like some unknown number of his followers had an experience of his presence. That was transformative. That was transformative. Uh, uh, This is before Christianity, right? This is the roots of Christianity. One might say. So Uh, now they have
1: to say. Now they have to say. What does this experience mean? What does this mean? Because they're Jews. They're practicing Jews, and so their categories are, Mashiach their categories savior. are Son of Man you know yes Savior Redeemer Redeemer these are categories in the tradition and, and they. what happens is this experience has been so powerful and so transformative and so authentic for them that they have to affirm it so they use the categories available to them and to affirm it but in the process they redefine those categories right. um, so they take Mashiach which for most people was gonna be a political leader, who's Mm -hmm. gonna be a new Davidic king who sat on a throne. Absolutely. And they say, this experience with Jesus has been transformative in my life, Mm -hmm. and so he must be Mashiach, but but the word doesn't mean what we thought it meant. And so now suddenly they talk about him being enthroned on the cross, Mm -hmm. you know? What does that even mean? You know, so they, they're taking images, inverting them. And that's the passage here, uh, the next passage on the sheet from Mark, from that first gospel. This is the moment in which Jesus sort of redefines our concept of Messiah. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, who at this point's been beheaded, uh, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So there was an expectation, Elijah's going to come back. Why? Because he was taken up in a he never died. Elijah's going to return. Maybe Jesus is Elijah, come back. This is
2: very important. When the scribes, remember they were the Pharisees, they were the rabbis. We talked about that, right? Yeah. Organized the books of the prophets. They added a line to the last line of the whole section of prophets, behold, a great and awesome day is coming when Elijah, my prophet, will return and turn the hearts of the children to their parents and the parents to their children. Behold, a great and awesome day is coming. And that is the last line of the prophets. So again, you're a first century Jew. Keep that in mind. So, hold on, let's finish the passage first. So, who, but
1: who do you say that I am, he says. Peter, this is one of his disciples, answered him, you are, the Messiah, Mashiach, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Now I want to circle back around to that statement, but then he goes, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Mm. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Okay. So Peter says, You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, Okay, I'm the Messiah. Let me tell you what that means. I'm going to suffer <laughs> and be killed. And and Peter goes, in Peter's mind, that's the not-Messiah. You know, that's the not-Messiah. And so Jesus... uh, this passage is likely a thought after the fact. You know, this is Christians um, reconstructing narrative in light of the events that happened, but what you see happening is the thought categories around Messiah are being stood on their head. This is a Messiah who can suffer. Um, So what they did to connect this to Scripture Two weeks ago, we looked at those suffering servant passages from Isaiah, and so they linked the the concept of Messiah to Isaiah's vision of the suffering servant. So Messiah is now transformed into one who suffers on behalf of the people, rather than the political king. The other thing that happens here, and he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. You see that? So in Mark's gospel, the earliest gospel account, Jesus never once publicly declares himself to be Mashiach. He never identifies himself in this way.
2: Mashiach meaning the descendant of the house of David, who is the king of the Jews, who will be anointed to sit on the throne. Jesus doesn't.
4: by Right. So Jesus never. Yeah, started. you could get yourself <laughs> crucified. Yeah. So. <laughs>
6: and then resurrected. So
1: Jesus never identifies in this way. But in Mark's gospel account, there are these little asides where someone figures it out. So Peter here goes, you're the Messiah. And Jesus sternly orders don't him say, to tell no one. There's that. another scene where uh, he's casting out a demon. The demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus silences the demon. So anytime someone's <laughs> on to him, he, he shuts him up. Uh, in 1901, a, a historical Jesus scholar...
3: Why scho- do you think he shuts them up? Well, I think so he this gonna is, answer that This
1: is 1901, this historical Jesus scholar, William Reed... He, he's trying to crack the code of this, what's called the messianic secret in Mark's gospel. Why is it a secret? And he proposes that, like it would appear on the surface of the count, Jesus never, in his actual historical ministry, proclaimed himself the Messiah. The gospel writers, though, who at this point are living in the later centuries, and they believe him to be the Messiah, they go, well, he must have known. But he didn't tell anyone, so he must have been keeping it a secret. (laughs) So you get these stories where, where, you know, someone's in the know, but he silences them. So that's a way scholars think of of explaining the historical Jesus silence, the fact that he never identified that way. Um, So does that make sense? Yeah, he he knew,
0: but he didn't want to cop
1: to. Right, right. Um, But but. So why didn't
3: he want to? Then so so the, historical Jesus,
1: the historical Jesus scholars would say the historical Jesus did not personally hold a messianic identity. Right. Mm-hmm. The later Christians, following the resurrection experience, affirmed and experienced him to be the Messiah, mm-hmm. so then these later narratives are reflections <coughs> after the fact. Well, he must have known, so he must have been keeping it quiet. Do you see the logic there?
4: Mm-hmm. No, I read this totally differently. Okay, what, what's your read? <laughs> okay, so... Is that, uh...
2: Nice and loud, Diane.
4: So, so Peter says, uh, we call you the, you know, I call you the, the right. anointed one. Yes. The, the one who's going to be the king and help us. Right. And, and Jesus says, yeah, the one who's going to be the king and helps you. Yeah, he's going to, you know, he's in for a lot of trouble with the powers that be. Right. So, uh, and, and, you know, and they'll, whoever stands up to Rome and says, I'm the king, I'm going to save the Jews. Rome is going to kill him, mm-hmm. so he's going to have a lot of suffering, and then maybe after he's dead, a movement will arise. Make you know mm-hmm. that's what how I would see this, and then Peter's, and then so so Jesus says, look, don't go around saying that because they're you're going to get me killed. Yeah, right. right. Is that the same as what you said? Well, it's not
1: the same as what i am said. That's reading the narrative at face value. Right, exactly. that, that, what, I'm, what I'm looking at is scholars trying to dig under this gospel account and, and say, why does there seem to be this funny secret that crops up a few places in the gospel, and Jesus nowhere else... And, and only in the gospel of Mark. Well, it, the Messianic, oh. it, it's focused in the Gospel of Mark. As a secret. As a secret. By, t- by the time the Gospel of John is written, the last Gospel, Jesus is, from the beginning of his ministry, publicly calling himself the Messiah and the light of the world and the bread of heaven, um, which is a totally different portrait than what you get in Mark, where it's a hush-hush, don't tell anyone. Um,
6: so in a sense, these are midrash. The, 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 yeah. These books are midrash to mm-hmm. explain what we what, what do know
1: about So that's one way of understanding it, that the, the gaps in the story, Christians are, are filling them in midrashically, midrash. in a way. Yeah. Um, but I just raise this not to say one reading or the other is right, right. Um, not to say Jesus did or did not have a mess- messianic identity. He could have seen himself in those terms, um, he, he may well have seen himself as fulfilling the hope of Israel.
2: Just but there's
1: a, a scholarly camp that would say, you no, know, Jesus didn't personally paint himself in those terms. He came to be understood in those terms um, following the, his death and the experience of resurrection the disciples had. Bill, what did you want to say?
3: Yeah,
5: I, it's a quarter to two. Yeah. And I'm concerned that um, I don't know the Jewish perspective of Moshiach, or the uh, Christian perspective of it and how they, they differ. Mm-hmm. Is it that the Jews believe that Christ was not the messi- Messiah and that Christians do think that Christ was the Messiah?
1: So that's a very that's a sim- simple read of it that, that is it. how Christians and Jews historically, in a very sort of unnuanced way, have referred to each other. Yeah. Well, you didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, and we know he's really the right. Messiah, so we know the truth and you don't. And... <laughs> What I'm trying to do here is nuance this and yeah. say that Jesus um, was interpreted uh, in a meaningful way in the thought categories of the religious and cultural tradition he rose up out of. Um, that, that there was an experience that led a group to see in him the fulfillment of their longing as children of Israel. They saw that in him, and so they named him Mashiach, um, Son of Man, those titles, because they, they felt that fulfillment in him. But in doing that, they redefined what those terms meant for them as Jews. Right. It no longer was a political re- leader. It was someone who suffered on behalf of the people. Um, the other thing that happens is that Messiah in the Christian New Testament, and this often gets overlooked, it's no longer an individual. So most people I'll were hoping... The most, most The longing at the time was for one person who will come and sit on the Davidic throne and individually be the Messiah. Christians break that wide open and they say the Messiah isn't simply an individual, the disciple is a collective.
3: Oh, that's
1: the son of the Holy Ghost? Well no, no, it's 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 the, the Christians themselves. So Doesn't you'll that. see, listen to this the final passage on here.
2: By the way, Bill, we'll be back next week. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so you get here, this
1: is this is the Apostle Paul. For just as the, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are, are one body, so it is with the Messiah. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And then he has this long metaphor here. Indeed, the body does, I won't read the entire thing. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And then the last line here, now you are, now you are the body of the Messiah, in Greek this would have been the Christ, and individually members of it. Mm-hmm. And then this final line from Paul, he, referencing Jesus, is the head of the body. So you see here, this is breaking Messiah open in a totally wild way. Messiah is now a collective body Of faithful people Jesus is the head of that body metaphorically but it's not that Jesus is the Messiah and you aren't it's that the Messiah is an unfolding collective of people and then each person integrated into that body when they're anointed with oil
2: they become part of the anointed body of the Messiah so this this is then a completely transformed understanding of what Messiah means
3: Right. Right. Right, it's not Messiah. Messiah. Uh,
2: the definition of Messiah has been transformed. Right. Okay, Joya, and then I'll share a little more. I was thinking it's a
5: humbling thing, actually, because you're all talking about names.
2: We are naming things. Yes. But if we, you us, who are we? Like every
5: one of us, how would you name yourself? What would you say you were? Mm-hmm. Who are you? And in a sense, there's a very humbling thing for us to understand and also to transform form ourselves in this thing of naming. Mm -hmm. When we think we've named the truth, we've named this literal, we're always off. There's a great story that I I got from a Hindu who goes, the devil and his companion were walking the streets of Woodstock. Mm -hmm. And the devil said, uh, the companion said to the devil, you know, you're finished, your life here is over. And the devil says, no, why is it over? He said, because a human being just picked the truth up from the floor right in front of the house. And the devil says, are you kidding? Give the human being 30 seconds. He's going to make a concept out of it. I'm not finished. And that's that naming thing that we've got to be careful of. And so you're talking about it
2: so wonderfully. Because it is Right. And, and, and it is about being. Thank you. Knowing. Thank you. Yeah. Our job is to be humble about our grasp of the truth. Yeah. Our task here, if we're going to make any headway, in understanding Judaism and Christianity, is to be hum- is to be humble about our claims to full understanding, Bob. Uh,
5: this transformation of the idea of the, mes- of the Messiah as a collective seems to me an echo entirely of the Jewish idea that it's the people of Israel who shall. Take on the task and the obligation to do good in the world and transform the world. Well, and,
1: and so I don't see that. The irony is, it doesn't seem new at this right. point. Right, it doesn't. And and what what Paul also does, he says, um, Christ who brought reconciliation has has made you in turn ministers of reconciliation. And so people are incorporated into this body of Mashiach in order to minister reconciliation to the world. So it's in order to continue Jesus' ministry through the collective. And it, it does seem to be a way a lot of contemporary Judaism works with
2: Messiah as well, that it's no longer ah. a hope
1: for one person. Well, we're jumping way ahead
2: there. Uh, right. if that's, a, that's an incredibly modern conception where... Or an ancient one. Uh, that's right. <laughs> But, and we're going to keep talking about it next week because uh, we we want to continue to talk about how and where these traditions diverged, Um, uh, but we still have a few more minutes, so keep talking.
1: Well, the the one thing, and then I want to pull these questions, the one thing I, I want to say from my perspective as a Christian and as a priest is that for dialogue between our traditions to go forward, we this is mostly Christians, have to get over this thing of Jesus was the Messiah and you guys missed the boat. It's just not helpful anymore. Um, It it never was helpful. (laughs) It was helpful for the early followers of Jesus because they were framing their experience in categories and terms that were meaning for them culturally and religiously. I think today we can say Messiah was a cultural, religious longing, expectation within a tradition um, wasn't an objective thing. Was there really going to be an, a Davidic king who would come? Well, that was a hope. It was a longing. Uh, these early Jews made sense of their experience through the language of that longing. Today, to continue to use that language is really only divisive. Um, and so to kind of get back and nuance it in this way and to say, well, for Christians in our tradition, Jesus is the Messiah. We experience him that way. He has that meaning for us, but then we don't have to say, and he has to have that meaning
2: for you. Right. You Nicely know? put. Nicely right. put. Well, isn't that the problem with all of many? I mean, all religions. It's not just that's the problem with all religions. It's the problem with all ideologies, well, that's Susan. What I mean. uh, we have to not what you know. Remember, remember it. communism. <laughs> remember, you know, great impulses gone awry right. because they insisted that everyone agree with them.
0: So it's, it, what I'm hearing is that when Jesus was crucified, something was unleashed mm-hmm. that allowed for vision mm-hmm. to take place among certain people. Mm-hmm. And then that was turned into all kinds of different things, mm-hmm. but the thing that was released Is the same kind of mystical energy that we all share in trying to figure out what it is to be a human being and what it is we still long for. And we may all long for something and call it something totally different than some king coming back and taking care of us. That is, it it all seems very Jungian to me Mm -hmm. in terms of the individuation that Mm -hmm. took place, you know, when, when the split. So where now it feels like the coming together of discussing this is getting back to the actual experience of what this thing was unleashed right. that we can all share in our own vision of this energy.
1: And it was it was initially a force of uh, for reconciliation in the world was how they envisioned it and they envisioned it, you know. Th- and this is part of the other dividing point. It was envisioned that we can start moving beyond an ethnic identity and incorporating Gentiles into this tradition and this lineage under Jesus. And so that also evolves it in a different way. But to see that the initial impulse was actually towards reconciliation. And so how does that, rec- how does that impulse need to play out now. today? Right. Because
0: men got, uh, sorry, but men got a hold of it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, was, let me,
2: well, let me put it this way. In the catastrophe... In the catastrophe of the year 70 and the destruction of Judaism's center, heart, um, there was an incredible disarray, and incredible pain. T-
0: PTSD.
2: Yeah, huge, Incredible disarray, incredible pain, and an incredible scramble to survive. Yeah. Different paths were taken. Um, within the Jewish community... Those paths were fiercely debated and became feuds. Mm -hmm. It became over in in during this time period. It's clear that Jews who thought Jesus was their Mashiach and other Jews were still praying together in the same synagogues Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. until a certain point. Right, and a split happened. Um, the The hoping for Mashiach didn't end in Judaism. In the year one thirty two. Uh, someone named Bar Kokhba, his name, was, who got the name Bar Kokhba was his sort of like uh, nom de guerre, which means son of a star. Shimon Bar Kokhba uh, was assumed by the leading rabbis, including Rabbi Akiba, the leading rabbi of the early second century, to be the Mashiach. and they threw all their weight behind a rebellion against Rome. And for three years in the Bar Kokhba rebellion, because Rome happened to be preoccupied in Gaul or something like that. Um, the um, uh, they minted coins, and they they felt like Jewish sovereignty had been restored, and Bar Kochba and the leading rabbis. So it's not were behind him behind him hundred percent. So what I want to get across to you is that there the idea of a Mashiach was very much alive, and because of the distru- the d- defeat of Bar Kokhba Rabbi Akiva and nine other of the leading sages who had backed him were publicly and gruesomely executed
3: mm-hmm.
2: in in the year 135 and we have in our Yom Kippur service a special part of the service with a medieval poem that remembers their martyrdom so I'm just saying we ain't that different in so many ways uh, uh, that I want now Susan you wanted to add something and Carol has for while too I, I recently heard
3: someone
4: to what you're talking about, that after the destruction of the temple, um, the rabbinical Jews reached for the Torah, and the Jesus movement Jews reached for the prophets.
3: Mm.
2: And okay. also the and, Jesus they, movement.
4: Chaos. They
3: that's mm-hmm. reached mm-hmm. for different. Mm-hmm. I would say
2: that's an overstatement, <laughs> but they reached for different things. Would be fair to say. The other thing we do. You look want to add more, last...
1: We also looked at last week the way after the destruction of the temple. You no longer have the temple to offer sacrifices. How do we make sense of this? In the Christian movement it was, well, Jesus has become the once for all sacrifice, so we don't need the temple anymore. And that was a way of making sense of, you know, the, the system's gone now, so, so Jesus replaces that. You know, it was,
2: that and was one way of making sense <coughs> post-destruction. And the Jewish solution post-destruction was that we were going to continue to pray for the restoration and rebuilding of the temple and for a Messiah to come, and in the meantime, since we can't offer sacrifices, we are going to serve God, and this, was, this is the sort of seminal teaching in rabbinic Judaism, through worship, deeds of loving kindness, and study. And so rabbinic Judaism gets framed in the destruction, post-destruction, but in a completely different direction. Gail, what did you want to share? Well she's on the peripheral vision side she's been waiting a long time.
5: I just wanted to say that it was such a time of, of ferment and looking for the Messiah. There were at least a half dozen people who claimed to be the
1: Messiah. Oh yeah.
5: In the course of the 1st century and who had followers. Yeah,
1: Jesus wasn't the only right, one. No means. Right. And Rome was crucifying
5: people right and left. I mean at one point like 20,000
4: mm-hmm. people crucified. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because Rome was Rome was struggling against this constant rebellion in Judea. and and to th- but people were claiming there was the Messiah, and and, and the other thing was, I think I got the numbers right. I think there were about 15 million Jews
0: at the time. At that time, one million died in the time of the destruction of the temple. This was a catastrophe. It's not just that a building got
2: yeah. or even the center of worship. It was right. an unbelievable degree of. Um, death right. yeah. So as we want to come up with this, yeah? And out of this comes
1: right. right. Judaism and Christianity. Right, right. When you were talking about the number of people claiming to, holding a messianic identity, just to think about what that meant for them, they were saying, I've been anointed by God to overturn this system. God, a lot of people must have been feeling that way. You feel so much oppression. And to say, I'm Mashiach, is to say, God is anointing me to change this, you know?
6: Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether I'm jumping ahead or jumping backwards, but um, part of the answer to my, to my um, request, not really question, is listening to you talk, or watching you talk, or experiencing you talk about Jesus, mm-hmm. which is very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, last week you said something about the, the Torah and the Ark, Being akin to the bread and the wine in the tabernacle, tabernacle. and I've been thinking about that all week. And something that I would love for you to address at some point that I think will help will help a lot of the facts just kind of fall into place for me is what do you mean? Not what do people mean, but what do you mean? And do you say? I don't even know if you say. That you love Jesus. Mm. Ah, yes. What what is yeah, yeah, that, yeah. and and how does it?
2: Mm-hmm. Can we ask you Christians this? that question and uh, next time, and hear a bunch of yeah. answers? We I were... can
6: tell you how I how and why and what I love about Torah. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking mm-hmm. about that for a long time, mm-hmm. but I, well, Torah. Torah. But I I it's a, it is a mystery. Mm hmm.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I that that is I mean, it's two o'clock exactly so now, so not it's not now. now to go into that <laughs> No no look, we'll show. make notes for next yeah. time. Yeah. Diane?
4: Call me cynical, but i,
2: mm-hmm. I Okay. <laughs> cynical. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: thank
1: you, thank you. Uh,
4: I imagine that a lot of this split, split had to do with politics. Um. All about politics. There was a of livelihood in, yeah, yeah. in
3: the rhythm.
4: Pardon me? There was a, There became a livelihood in having followers and being uh, a priest.
2: I don't think so. Oh, I don't no, think not so. At this, not at this point. No, there were no, no. Christian priests oh, okay. at this point. Okay. Uh, this is before Christianity has taken shape in the way we know Institutional. it. Institutionally, these are Jews.
4: But there were still. A,
2: and they were being persecuted
1: at this point it wasn't it wasn't a livelihood you were actually likely to get kicked out of your synagogue and rejected by your friends for believing this crazy guy jesus was your Mashiach like it wasn't there wasn't
2: any livelihood in it at the at the first it was desperate times yeah later when constantine converts the roman empire to become the holy roman empire and christianity becomes then power play comes in but that's hundreds Wait, of years later. Yeah.
4: So you think that this split that happened during the first century is was was primarily about ideology?
2: Trying to find a solution to life's problems um, during How to a time carry of Jewish in, identity forward, in a time of incredible ferment and in, in and, uh, possible death and destruction. Um, what happens to groups when they're when they're under that much duress? Um, so yeah, no, I, I don't think that there's a profit motive here. We, I think it's hard to imagine just how thin, how close to things falling apart were at that point, and what had to be built out of the rubble of, of the first century that eventually created Christianity and rabbinic Judaism. So I think your your cynical your cynicism is well placed, but not in this particular historical uh, moment. It comes later in the but game. now it's two o'clock. Um, so before you get up, if you'd be so kind, before you leave, a couple of announcements. Um, let there be lakkas. Come celebrate the first night of Hanukkah with us on Sunday, December 6th. With a latka dinner at New World Home Cooking, uh, it's a, it's about the cost of a night a dinner night out, twenty four dollars for members and thirty for non-members. Take a postcard, go online, you can sign up. We're going to have fun on the first night of and, Hanukkah.
4: And those are the latkes that beat Bobby Flay's.
2: This really? Yes. Oh, on the Cooking Channel or something? Okay, these are Rick Orleno's award-winning latkes. Uh, this Sunday. This Sunday, Ellen Treblasser, on behalf of the Ulster County Jewish Federation, has organized a day of Jewish learning. Are there more flyers?
0: There are more flyers outside. Today is the last day to, to register in advance for $20. If you come on Sunday, it will be 30 So Wonderful.
2: Hey, everyone, I don't know. If, if you have to leave, leave. Otherwise, stay for two more minutes, because some people, people really want to share a couple more announcements, if you'd be so kind. Lori. Um, on Sunday, the 22nd, here in synagogue, we're going to do a death cafe. Kind of At Pinnagot, we're going to talk about the
5: That's directed, what you
3: need to
2: know and why you need to know it. If you don't know anything about what I'm talking about, please Great. So I want to... And Tuesday night, we have our next class on, on Pathways into Jewish Prayer. It's
3: going
0: to be chanting. With sherryachos fight.
2: Oh. So friends, I hope this has been worthwhile. We'll continue the conversation next week. I also, I also want to thank Matthew. Hey, Matthew. Oh, bravo. Hold on. Hey, thanks. You're awesome. So are you, so are you. Stu, you want to unmute? Stu, you still there? You still there, Stu?
1: I hope you're still there. It says you're still there. And if you
2: can unmute this. All right. Yeah.